It's Wednesday, June 16th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is Peter Bergman on the road for Radio Free Oz, and I'm in the Hello Kitty Main Cathedral of the Church of One Way Light, listening to Pastor Mercer Berther wind up his sermon to the 5,000 One Way Lighters here in the hall. Many of my flock have come up on me and asked, Pastor, how can we be sure that we're real Americans? And not a bunch of undocumented parasites like all the not-me's out there. And I say that God has given you more than two punched stone tablets, more than one rosy crosshair, more than a thousand virgins waiting on the wrong side of heaven for themselves. He has given you his most precious seal. He has certified us. And we noose that holy ticket around our necks and hang it proudly twixt our breasts. Pastor of Peter Bergman, Radio Free Oz. Hey, you really have the congregation in the palm of your hand. Well, it's where I like to hold him. Him? Uh, uh, no, no, this, this, my badge, my birthright, my birth certificate. I hold it very dear. May I read it? Sure. Uh, let's see. Hold mm-hmm. Mercer Berther was born to Luther and Bertha Berther mm-hmm. on July 3rd, 1951, attested by Corliss McClutter, the redundant register of Hintville, Arizona. Yes, I'm a Hintville hyena, class of 67. Summer nights under the bleachers with the cheerleaders... Or was it the drum majors? Well, anyway, walk with me through the one light trade show to my lair. <laughs> the Church of One Way Light welcomes the North Oklahoma Teabag Dips and the Phoenix chapter of the Fun Famished Freeloaders. You're wearing your ticket, so come in and kick it. So, where's yours? Where's my what? Your certificate, pilgrim. Oh, 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 this. No, not your press pass. That's not your American ticket. Any tanned skin, clean-shaven, wide-hipped terrorist could walk in here with one of those. Well, I don't find it necessary to walk around with my birth certificate hung around my neck, Pastor. Obamanite. I'm not the president's man. Hey, he ain't the president, because he won't sport a ticket. So I don't have to pay him taxes so he can go sleep with Che and Mao. Go easy on him, Lighter. He's a tweeny. Tweeny? Yeah, you're tween, being an idiot and getting a ticket. Down here, you don't wear one of those. They're likely to drag you off and push your ass through the wrong face of the fence. I saw a lot of uh, soldiers in the cathedral, Pastor. Oh, that's the one-way light brigade. Huh? They're not going back to AFPAC. Until Mr. B. Hussein up there in the White House flashes his membership. And what if he does produce his birth certificate? What then? Well, I'd say that any man who can manipulate the Internet to get elected president is capable of going up there and getting a counterfeit ticket. No, that not me is keen you bound. We'll throw away the election and Senator Dang Fenson, Mama Grizzly, will take over... And then it's one-way light, all the way. This is Peter Bergman for Radio Free Oz, and I'm getting my ticket out of here. 
Oh yeah, Radio Free Oz, residing on RadioFreeOz.com. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, my co-host, David Osman. Hey, Pete, we're over, we're over the halfway of a month barrier here. Yes, sir. On our way to summertime. Yeah, we're we're almost at the solstice, right? Long coming, up, coming up in a week. Boy, up here on Whidbey Island, it like the sun never sets. It goes down at about like two in the morning and bing, five in the morning, it's up again. It's not quite the Arctic Circle up here, but uh, there's only a few hours for the little raccoons and little animals to go out there at night and eat up all your vegetables in your vegetable garden. That's true. And then, then of course, it does, it, it it basically pays back for the time when it's 4.30 in the afternoon and it's pitch dark, you know, in December. Well, we hear the birthers, uh, Pastor Mer- Mer- Mercer Berther. Mercer Berther, yeah. Yeah, basically a, a, a teabag head. So I thought we'd just read a little teabaggy stuff. Oh, you got go. some more bag heads. Here. Well, I got, okay. I got, uh, I'm on a bag. I got, got a right. bag man here. The, the Lexington, this is Lexington, Kentucky, mm-hmm. County Republican Party, a pretty conservative group of dudes, uh, has asked GOP State Senator Jack Knotts to resign for calling gubernatorial nominee Nikki Haley a raghead. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> the county party said the comments brought shame and disgrace to both Knotts and the state in the resolution condemning the state senator's actions. They're condemning him, right? Wow. I mean, the, you'd think, the, the, the state committee? Yeah. I mean, you'd think not. committee? Well, Knotts was a key ally of one of Haley's primary opponents, and he used the term in a recent interview to describe both President Barack Obama and Haley. <laughs> who is a child of Sikh immigrants from India. So he's calling Haley a raghead, and he's calling Obama a raghead. Wow. Probably- yeah, she, her, her, she's from a Sikh family. Her, yeah, right. her father wears a turban, wears his hair long, has the bracelet, the whole the thing. Knife, the, the knife, whole thing. the whole thing. The son had to cut his hair, though, he I did? heard, because he was getting cruelly teased at school. Uh, Lexington, Kentucky, or if that's where they live, you know. But, you know, so she's, but he's, but Obama's a raghead too, you see, because his middle name is Hussein, I guess. Okay, so Knotts, though, hey, he later tried yeah, to clarify he tried his to comments. Him. A little backpedaling as I'm going. Well, saying in yeah. a statement that he believes Haley is pretending to be someone she is not, much as Obama did. But I apologize to both for an unintended slur. Wait a minute. What's unintended about calling somebody a raghead? Oh, I meant to call them a baghead? Or, or, or you know, what, what? what is it? What are we I talking about here? Raghead probably is right up there with the classic five or six uh, demeaning racial slurs. So I think we can assume that it's just as bad as the N-word. You mean Nixon? Now, here's an article from the Gray Lady that has the White House's Patty's all in a twist. They just don't like what they're hearing. It's the truth. It's just straight journalism. But it, it really does punch a whole lot of holes in the whole Afghan strategy. And, you know, the strange thing, as you'll see, is that Mr. McChrystal, our, our general, constantly is telling them the truth. I mean, I got to say, he's, he's the most straightforward general I've encountered in a long time since probably Ulysses S. Grant. Here we go. Two senior Afghan officials were showing President Hamid Karzai the evidence of that spectacular rocket attack on the nationwide peace conference earlier this month when Mr. Karzai told them that he believed the Taliban were not responsible. Of course, this is, this is just crazy. 
They quote, the president did not show any interest in the evidence, none. He treated it like a piece of dirt, said Amrullah Saleh, the director of the Afghan intelligence service. This is the guy that's running his intelligence service, and he's not being taken seriously. Mr. Karzai suggested in the meeting that it might have been the Americans who carried it out. Minutes after the exchange, Mr. Saleh and his interior minister, Hanif Atmar, resigned. The most dramatic defection from Mr. Karzai's government since he came to power nine years ago. Now, Salah is is no amateur. He was Massoud's man. He's been in this for a long time. He knows what's going on. He's loyal to Karzai. He's loyal to secular government in Afghanistan. And he's, he's being so poorly treated that he had to resign along with another serious confederate. Okay, Mr. Saleh and Mr. Atmar said they quit because Mr. Karzai made it clear that he had no longer, he no longer considered them loyal. But underlying the tensions, according to Mr. Saleh and Afghan and Western officials, was something much more profound, that Mr. Karzai had lost faith in the Americans and NATO to prevail in Afghanistan. Okay, you hear that? As far as our man in Afghanistan, our Mr. President, our guy who stole the election, as far as he's concerned, we just ain't cutting it. For that reason, Mr. Saleh and other officials said Mr. Karzai has been pressing to strike his own deal with the Taliban and the country's arch-rival Pakistan, the Taliban's longtime supporter. Karzai is making secret deals with Pakistan and the Taliban? This is not good news. According to a former senior Afghan official, Mr. Karzai's maneuverings involve secret negotiations with the Taliban outside the purview of American and NATO officials. This is the beginning of the end. This is it. The Americans and their NATO partners are pouring tens of thousands of additional troops into the country to weaken the hardcore Taliban forces and bring the group to the bargaining table. Mr. Karzai appears to believe that the American-led offensive cannot work. Now, this is in the midst of Washington having second thoughts. Uh, uh, Senator Levin is saying it isn't working. Other people in Congress are beginning to grumble. Uh, You know that there's going to be this whole review come December as to how well things are going on. McChrystal has said, no, we won't be able to go into Kandahar really until September. Things are falling apart. But that's one thing when your, your military strategy is sketchy. It's when the president of the country who represents you, the person whose nation you are building, is secretly dealing with the enemy. I mean, those are end times in Afghanistan. Dave, remember when they passed the health care reform, everybody said, this is the death of the Democrats. And the Republicans said, we're going to repeal it, that we're going to run on repeal. And okay. Said, That's yep. it. Yep. Well, the Democrats have aired their second ad on national cable television accusing repeal-happy Republicans of wanting to get rid of health care reform and all its benefits. The ad is timed to coincide with the government's mailing to seniors the first $250 Medicare rebate checks fixing the so-called prescription drug donut hole. Yeah, my donut needs money. My donut hole needs... I can get a big roll of bills in my donut hole. I'll tell you that, buddy. DNC Chairman Tim Kaine is daring Republicans to make repeal the focus of their fall campaign to try and win back control of Congress, challenging the NOPers to tell senior citizens and others benefiting from health care exactly which parts of the reform law they'd scrap. 
Now, Minority Leader John, permanent suntan Boomer, <laughs> said in a radio interview recently that repealing health care is the party's number one priority. I think he's out of touch. He says, they got everything else in the entire bureaucracy that they need to control our health care system with the signing of this bill. That's why repealing this bill has to be our number one priority. Well, the DNC says the Republicans thought health care was their silver bullet and that they were going to pass it and run from it. But we were going to pass it. They were going to run from it. But actually, we're going to make sure uh, that uh, that we hang their idea of, you know, of, of uh, uh, repealing it around their necks. And it seems, um, actually seems to be working. Because according to an analysis by the Rand Corporation, that, you know, non-policy think tank mm-hmm, there in, mm-hmm. in Santa Monica, the U.S. health care reform law was the best option for, for, for providing health insurance to the largest number of people while keeping federal government costs as low as possible. Well, one hopes that's the way it's going to be. I mean, that's how it works out. But as far as repealing the bill, it's, what was it, 2,100 pages? Yeah. How many subject, sub, sub, subsections of subsections of number, you know, clause 11.333BA, you know, are there in that bill? You can't, there, no Congress will ever just say, no, these two, well, just throw out the whole thing. Well, that's what they want to do. They, they want to repeal the whole thing. You, you, they want to let it go. They say, no, we just get rid of it. We're going to take control of the Congress, take this 2,100 pages, and basically ash can it. Lots of luck. Okay, we fought the war on poverty and lost. We fought the war on drugs and lost. We're fighting the war on terror. The jury is still out. And now there's a call for the war on oil. As BP's efforts to plug the leak in the Gulf of Mexico have floundered, says Time magazine, and I think they're being kind when they say floundered, there's been a mounting clamor for the U.S. military to do something. Uh, Recently, a former Navy submariner urged that the leak be attacked with conventional explosives to seal it. We reported on Oz about that man. Very interesting. I don't know why he's not being taken seriously. And recently, a scientist who has worked for the Marines made a similar argument, advocating the detonation of a four-ton bomb just above the leak to snuff it out. But advocates of a military solution may want to consider the force's own recent record in underwater and leaking fuel cleanup before demanding that troops be sent in. Okay, last week, the Navy lost four of its 13 unmanned underwater vehicles during a mine hunting exercise in the mouth of Chesapeake Bay. Whoa! After fruitless days of searching for them uh, from boats and planes, they've turned to dolphins and sea lions to aid in the hunt for the five-foot-long, 80-pound sonar-outfitted submersibles. Go Flipper, the Fredericksburg Freelance Star newspaper editorialized. These are, by the way, very expensive machines that I paid for with my tax dollars, and they can't find them, so send in the dolphins and the sea lions. Ugh! Just as disconcerting is the Air Force's handling of a fuel leak under New Mexico's Kirkland Air Force Base. A 16-inch pipe used for jet fuel at the base had leaked fuel from shortly after a bulk fuel storage site opened on the base in 1950 until 1999 when the leak was discovered. Just like BP, the Air Force is minimizing the leak. It maintains between 1 and 2 million gallons flowed from the pipe during the perhaps half century it oozed undetected. But state environmental officials say 8 million gallons may have escaped. While the Air Force managed to stop the leak 
Like a decade ago, the escaped jet fuel is now floating a foot thick atop Albuquerque's water table 500 feet beneath the ground. It is moving silently and unseen from the base to city limits. It wants to go to town. It wants to see a movie. It wants to pollute the water system. It's what it does. It is moving silently and unseen. As I said, from the base to the city limits, it has oozed underneath a park and is traveling toward the wells that supply the city's drinking water. It's the blob. As the scale of the contamination became increasingly clear, the state grew frustrated by what it saw as the Air Force's foot dragging. I I guess maybe BP learned foot dragging from the Air Force. So it shifted state responsibility for the cleanup from New Mexico's Groundwater Quality Bureau, which carries little clout with the feds, to its hazardous waste. Waste Bureau, which carries out cleanups under federal guidance. New Mexico's officials estimated the cleanup could cost $100 million and have maintained the Air Force's original plan to clear up the spill would take, get ready, 56 years. Well, that's the kind of time frame they're talking about for bringing back the ecological balance in the Gulf. Hey, Air Force, BP, shake hands. No, they don't bite. And, uh, and, (laughs) but then, as you know, chinchillas, or or mutated chinchillas like these, uh, blue mutants, we call them. Is that because of their peculiar uh, coloration, Brad, that makes them so rare? Uh, No, they were first crossbred or introduced, as we say, by Alistair Blue, a munitions, uh, a mutations expert who's been into the raising of these little sweethearts. Oh, oh, careful there. Is he getting, is he getting away? Uh, that's all right. We get a lot more of them, and they do that, and that's part of the fun of raising them. And they're very clean, clean animals. I wanted to ask about that. They're very clean. And if they do mess, as we refer to it, they'll do it in their little cages, and it doesn't make any difference. And they dig a little hole for it. Also. <laughs> Is that uh, what this one's doing here? Can we? Could we get a close-up no. of that? No, no. No, this one's just trying to get away. Uh, that, that's his mate over there. That's the one they're trying to catch. Well, look at that. They just caught it. Uh, oh, that's... Our floor manager just told me they stepped uh, on it. Oh, that, that's, a, that's a female. That's a squirrel, as we say. Those bright colors around the snout. Nose rings, we call them. They differentiate between them. And, of course, you just cover them up with this nair guard and they won't breed. They can't breathe? No, 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 they can't breed. <laughs> There's one crawling up my leg. But uh, seriously, Brad, Ken, we want them to breed as much as possible, and this guard is only used, of course, when you're away on vacation, you know, and it becomes inconvenient for them to... Uh, 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 Brad, now, how could we... Let's go over to that demonstration. Oh, you sure. Go well, I'm going to show you how absolutely trouble-free these little animals are. Back here. If you have kids like I know I have, you'll want to watch this very carefully now. Uh, we got a big close-up right there of the little... <laughs> if it just stays still here. Yep. <laughs> now, I'm... I'm going to put out this lighted cigarette on this chinchilla now. There. Now, you, see, you can see I'm just letting it burn there. It doesn't harm the coat at all. Oh, that's, a, that's amazing. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, how's... how's it's still smoking there. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, how's, how, is this, uh, how is this possible, Ken? Well, Brad, this chinchilla is entirely synthetic. 
That's that's fantastic. And with these little fellas raised in your spare time in the playhouse or the garage or the slaves' quarters, you'll be making hay while the sun shines and at midnight, too, with mutant well, blue. thank you. Thank you, Brad. And you two little... What's his name? Doesn't have a name. They're all his name. Oh, well, thank you. Just a moment. We'll tell you the numbers to call. A lot of people say that Rand Paul, the, you know, the guy that, that's now running for senator uh, in Kentucky, is certifiable. But I don't know about that. All I know is that he's not certified. At really? Least, not certified? Not well certified. Okay. I thought he was an ophthalmologist. Well, he, he said yeah. in his resume that he's a board-certified ophthalmologist, uh-huh. even though the National Clearinghouse for such certifications says he hasn't been, for, been so for the past five years. Paul, who practices in Bowling Green, says he is certified by the National Board of Ophthalmology, a group that he incorporated in 1999 and that he heads. Really? Yeah. yeah he, but that entity is not recognized by the American Board of Medical Specialties, which works with the AMA to approve such specialty boards. Uh-huh. Lori Bukas, a spokesman for the American Board of Medical Specialists, said her organization considers certifications to be valid only if they are done by the 24 groups that they have approved and it works with the AMA. So he didn't get approved. So what does he do, the great libertarian? Mm-hmm. He creates his own creates board. Creates his own. Well, I and think you know that's, what? Yeah. He let himself in immediately. That's the, that's the libertarian way. You know, there's going to be the Department of Licensing that is a self, you know, it's Dave's Department of Licensing. That gives Dave a driver's license and you don't have to worry about any going in and taking a test or anything like that. Yeah, the guy that's about to, you know, about to put something in your eye or maybe the surgeon's about to take your heart out, board certified, yeah. I just formed the organization yesterday. I did just fine. Yeah, all me and my neighbors, we sit around, we practice with our knives and our guns, and and, uh, we know how to eviscerate and do all those things, so we're the board of evisceration. That's easy. You know, you you can establish, I mean, think of taking over, like, the Department of Defense. Right. You know? This is Rand Paul's Department of Defense. You yeah, know, where I get those tanks over there, you know? <laughs> Move those troops into, out of... Between around Afghanistan, around Afghanistan. Any anyway, whatever he says goes because yeah, he runs the, the show. He runs the board. I think that's a great libertarian solution. One, two, three, four. Dirty day goes by Sirens wail The babies cry Hey Get me out of here A madman drives Down the dusty highway Screaming and yelling Get out of my way Hey Get me out of here Getting lost is a matter of fact If you can't find your way You'll never get back to no. know No, no, no There's a tattooed punk chick And a surfer dude Rollerblading trying to catch the groove Hey, get me out of here Your money and you take your chances 
Forget about all the cheesy romances Hey, get me out of here Scott Wild on the phone, our social media guru. How are you doing out there in North Dakota, Mr. Wild? Things are going great, Peter. It's good to talk to you. Well, so far we've got people kind of up on their new websites and they're reaching out to Facebook and reaching out to Twitter. Now we're going to talk about metrics, i.e., how do you know who's listening, how many, and how much they're worth, et cetera, et cetera. Talk to us about metrics, Scott. Well, it's really kind of the uh, the goal in all of doing in doing anything as far as social media or your internet marketing campaign is you want to have some sort of measurement tool that that tells you well what we're doing is worth it um, and also to help us help guide us in the future as to what's working and what's not working. Um, we were just having a conversation before we jumped on the air here about uh, where are people listening, you know, and, and when we look at some of the numbers, um, maybe more people are listening via podcast and iTunes and downloading the information than they are via the streaming. And those are the types of things, especially in the podcast world, where measurement can come in handy because it helps us to determine where are people consuming this content and what's important. Um, one of the things I think I'll start by talking about metrics is what are the important pieces to look at when you're looking at your your monthly web stats report. Well, how do you and first of all how do you access your monthly web stat report? Red usually, stats. it's through your uh, web host. Um, mm-hmm. Whoever is hosting your website will provide some sort of a stats, whether it's AW Stats or um, you know Google Analytics uh, can be installed on a site. I I run the web stats off of the server. Mm-hmm. as well as the Google Analytics. And I analyze the two because they give me different data. Okay. Um, but they also provide some backup for some of the same data. So usually it's your web host. You want to talk to who's ever hosting your website and say, where can I find my monthly stats? Or as we're calling it, metrics. Okay. 
Um, the, one of the first things you look at is unique visitors. Um, the reason for that being um, you want to know how, how true your network is or, and how big your reach is. And so when you can find out, you know, if you go to the site three times, Peter, and I go to the site three times, that's six visits. Mm -hmm. But there's only two unique visitors there right. with you and I. So it's important to, first of all, say how many unique visitors, but then find out how often are they returning. So mm -hmm. you want to know total number of visits. And you can do an average to say, you know, the average person is coming back two to three times a week, which if you're doing five shows a week is a pretty good result. Yeah. Um, you're going to get some people that come back for all five shows during the week. So very important that we understand who's coming, how often they're, they're coming back, and then length of stay on the website is another really critical piece. Um, most metrics now still give you hits, which is really, in my opinion, garbage because every single element on your website, every graphic, every widget is considered one hit. So <clears throat> I can program your web, your homepage, so when someone just pulls it up, you get 20 hits automatically. Right. From the first so it, it, can, so it can be a bogus stat. It really kind of is. I mean, it's really nothing to put a lot of weight into. Um, you could have millions of hits, but that doesn't mean you have millions of visitors coming. So we're looking at unique visitors. We're looking at the amount of stay. How often are they returning? And then uh, Google Analytics will tell you things like what keywords are they using in the search engines to find you. That's important. And this can help you um, sort of pick the language you want to use on the site. I always say you got to use customer-centric language versus organization-centric language because you have to talk their language. You have to create that emotional connection with them so that they buy into it and, and they, they feel like there's a connection there with, well, that you're well, making. Well, Scott, there's more to talk about on metrics. We'll Absolutely. do that on our next session. We're going to get into more metrics and we're also going to find out about how to get, how to use certain tools to reach out to lots of people, you know, simultaneously. Thank you, Scott. We'll be back real soon. Right on. Okay. Bad news from another Stan. This one, Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyz mobs burned Uzbek villages and slaughtered their residents this weekend in the worst ethnic riding the Central Asian nation has seen in 20 years, sending more than 75,000 Uzbeks fleeing across the border into Uzbekistan. Most of the Uzbek refugees were elderly people, women and children, and many had gunshot wounds, the Uzbek Emergency Ministry said. It confirmed that refugee camps were being set up for them in several areas of Uzbekistan. Doctors reported that dysentery was spreading among children at, at the makeshift refugee camps, and thousands of victims were too fearful to seek treatment for the gunshot wounds. I don't know why, but they were. Fires set by rioters have destroyed most of Ash, the second largest city in Kyrgyzstan, and food was scarce after widespread looting. They, they've destroyed the second largest city in, in the country? They're just like, like out of what? Out of like nowhere? Um, and I believe it all started with a disagreement at a casino. <laughs> okay. All right. So they've taken out the second largest city in Kyrgyzstan. Triumphant crowds of Kyrgyz men took control of Ash as the few Uzbeks still left in the city of 250,000, formerly of 250,000, barricaded themselves in their neighborhood compounds. And, you know, this is a big deal for the United States, Russia and China also, but particularly the United States, because we have big bases there that supply uh, the work we're doing in the neighboring stan. 
Afghanistan. I mean, the Russians are responsible for this in the long run because they, as part of the great Russian empire, I think it was the evil empire or the great bear. I can't remember how we referred to it. But when there was a Soviet empire, they took all of these Central Asian countries, all of these stands, and made them into loyal communists and kind of tamped down all of the ethnic dissension, the way that Tito damped down all the ethnic dissension in, uh, in Yugoslavia and its environs. And once Tito was gone, the wall was down, the bear is dead, everybody is at everybody else's throats. And we're next door nation building! Well, Pete, way back in the continuation of the front page oil spill story that occurs on every front page of every New York Times since, what now, day 50, day 55 or something we're up to, um, way at the end which is after the point where, you know, you're going to cut the story back because you only have so many ad pages to fill your uh, newspaper. So you're going to cut this story back from the, from the end. That's right. the way, you know, journalists work, cut from the end, because all oh, my head, that's the important part, the page one part. Well, here way at the end is, is, this, uh, is, is a new word. You know, we've gone through top kill and, you know, all, all this kind of language, uh, 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 kill line, that's another one of those specialty words they only use in the, in the petroleum industry. Yeah. Well, they, they have a new, a new word here called tapered string. Tapered string? Yeah. The committee leaders said that shortly before the blowout, they'd been studying the records, BP engineers chose a faster, less expensive design for the final string of casing the steel pipe that lines the well. The design that was chosen, which used a so-called tapered string, uh -huh, cost about seven to ten million dollars less than another method. But the tapered string offered less protection if the cementing job were poor, poor, and gas were to rise up the well. It <coughs> sounds like stomach acid. Uh, so uh, the 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 New York Times reported uh, this casing design before, but this is like getting right into the records now. They're into the email and an exchange of email messages in the week before the blowout. Are yeah. we getting to where we're getting, where the, we're getting closer here? Yeah. BP drilling engineers discussed the casing plans with one Brian P. Morell asking another for a quick review of one schematic diagram. Sorry for the late notice, Mr. Morell wrote. This has been nightmare well, which is everyone all over the place. This is a week before it spilled. The nightmare well. The nightmare okay. well. Mm, the choice of a tapered string. All right, this is now entering, entering our language. The choice of a tapered string meant that the well had only two barriers to upward gas flow that could cause a blowout. Cement near the bottom of the well and a seal assembly near the top. That's well, it. I'll tell you, you just don't put seals in charge of the of the well top, right? I mean, no, I mean that. Some of them are a lot brighter than the people working for BP. So tapered string for a nightmare well. I mean, it's already beginning to have an Edgar Allan Poe feel about it. You know, well, it's going Hollywood on us. Oh no! Yes, BP officials have turned to a new source to help them with the oil cleanup. Kevin Costner. Oh. Yep. Kevin the oil Costner. giant announced it has ordered 32 machines from Costner's company. These are centrifuge mechanisms that separate oil from water. 
and recycle the crude at the same time. That's what Costner said. He said, this is the key. It's the linchpin to people going back to work. It's certainly a way to fight oil spills in the 21st century. It creates an efficiency where there are no efficiencies out there, and it's been a long time coming. He's been working on it for like almost 20 years with his brother, who's a scientist. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's, it's a centrifuge, so it spins, it separates the oil by so. spinning them out, presumably, right, for oil from water. Each machine weighs about 4,000 pounds, mm-hmm. and it allows the crews to collect more oil. He said skimming, uh, you know, the skimmers are picking up 90% water and 10% oil. That's mm-hmm. what they're using it right now. What the, his machine simply does is that this particular case will give a pure payload. Suddenly a barge will be coming back to shore with 99% oil as opposed to the other way around. Thank you, Kevin Costner. Well, thank you, Hollywood, for giving somebody enough money to be able to put into a decent, uh, uh, civic-minded yeah. Uh, intelligent, useful program. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of him. You know, he, he's a guy that wasn't just an actor all of his life. He, he was the manager of Raleigh Studios in in Hollywood, which was a place that rented out to all sorts of people. And you know, you had to be real practical to keep that going. Hooray for Hev- Kevin Hosner or Heaven Bosner or whatever I'm calling him. I'm so excited I can't pronounce the star's name. <laughs> Here's some hopeful news from McNewspaper. The Venerable Claremont School of Theology, which has taught Methodist ministers and theologians for more than a century, will try an unorthodox approach this fall, cross-training the nation's future Muslim, Christian, and Jewish religious leaders in classrooms scattered around Southern California as they work toward their respective degrees. I wonder what kind of cross-trainers you have to wear to sit in a class with other Jews or Muslims or Methodists, depending on your own choice. This experimental approach is intended to create U.S. religious leaders who not only preach tolerance in an era of religious strife, but who have lived it themselves by rubbing shoulders with those in another in another of the, what they call the Abrahamic faiths. Yeah, Abraham is like a top cat in all three of them. The idea already faces resistance for more conservative elements mm-hmm, uh, because they don't like the idea of watering down their own approach. But Here's what the people of Claremont are saying. Christians attend school with Christians, Jews with Jewish, and Muslims with Muslims, said Reverend Jerry Campbell, president of the Claremont School of Theology. Educating people in a segregated environment is not a way to teach them to be peacemakers. It only steeps them in their own religion and with their own people. It's true, and it's a tough one. It's a real tough one. Because one of the things that makes religion powerful on a personal level is strong belief. All of the liberal religious thinkers, well, they have a problem. They can think twice about something. It may not even be the inerrant word of God. They know there are many Bibles. They know there's the regular Bible. And they know there's the Mel Gibson Bible. And they know there's the Comics Illustrated Bible. And they know there's the Backwards Bible for Blind Satanists. They know things have been changed. So they're willing to adapt. But Fundamentalists, and we find them in all religions, fundamental Jews, Christians, fundamental, you know, Muslims, they're all over the place. Few fundamental Buddhists, and I don't know if there's many fundamental Shintoists, I'll have to figure it out, but the Abrahamic faiths have a tendency to bring forth fanatics because it's a way to stay certain in uncertain times. Blind faith. You may bump into reality now and then, but you know these are bruises only on the way to heaven.
Well, excuse me, but I think you've got my chair. There's a dress code here and you'll have to buy a beer if you want to stand up there. There's a cover charge and it's rather large. So if you plan to stay, check your coat for a fee and then talk to me when you're ready to pay because it's my country from sea to shining sea. Most everything's expensive. There ain't nothing free, yes, it's my country Most things just aren't allowed Well, I may have just got here yesterday But it's my country now Well, the natives, they didn't own the land It was all just going to waste So, finders keepers is the motto of my race one whole generation my family's been working hard so when those immigrants come a knocking i say not in my backyard because it's my country from sea to shining sea most everything has fences and there ain't nothing free yes it's my country most things just aren't allowed Well, I may have just got here yesterday But it's my country now Uh, no, uh, you can't come in No, you need a special pass I'm, I'm sorry, that requires exclusive certification I don't care who you know No, there are no exceptions Just fill out these forms and make an appointment no, we'll call you. I'm sorry, you're taking up space in line. Can't you read the signs? Because it's my country From sea to shining sea Most everything pays taxes And there ain't nothing free Yes, it's my country And most things just aren't allowed Well, I may just got here yesterday and I wiped out everything in my way and I own it now and I'm here to stay cause it's my country now Can too much education cost you a job? Is it getting that ironic in this double dip economy? A landmark report from Georgetown University on education and the workforce forecasts an uneven relationship between colleges and the job market. Although more future jobs will require advanced education, colleges are not doing enough to prepare their students for the projected workforce. See, the problem seems to be that a liberal education, a classical liberal education, the kind I got, seems to be less and less relevant in a world that is less and less liberal and less and less educated, I guess. The colleges that most students attend, quote, need to streamline their programs so they can emphasize employability, said Anthony P. Carnivale, director of the Georgetown Center. Carnivale acknowledged that such a shift would accept a dual system in which a select few receive an academic college education for no particular reason, and most students would receive a college education that is career preparation. You know, shop. We are all 
offended by tracking, he said. But the reality is that the current system doesn't do a good job with a career-oriented track, in part by letting many of the colleges on that track aspire to be Harvard. Yeah, you don't want to aspire to be Harvard. If you have to, aspire to be Yale. Bula Bula. He said that educators have a choice to be loyal to the purity of your ideas and refuse to build a selective dual system or make the people better off. In England, when you get ready for a college time, you know, you get divided actually earlier before that into two, you get tracked into two types of schools. The ones that are uh, career oriented, you know, like uh, they, they teach you trades and the ones that just teach you to be too smart. Well, it appears that just being taught foreign languages and history and philosophy and political science and art and all that just doesn't mean much when they're looking for number crunchers and people who can do PowerPoint backward in their sleep or whatever. So now you can go to college and learn to be a mole peener or an aeronautics engineer, and you never have to become truly educated. That's okay. You can watch television all day where it's not a requirement. Another fine Oz, if I might say so myself, but no Oz is complete without a touch of tang. Let's have it. A little bit of tang from Wang Wei back in the 8th century. This is just a sweet little poem. It doesn't have to do with spring or anything else. It's, That's okay. We can, be, has to we can do, be generalists. Yeah, it's, it's all yeah. right. This, this one is titled My Mount Chungnang Cottage by Wang Wei. Since middle age, I've been a most enthusiastic Buddhist. Now that I'm old, I've settled here in the mountain country. Sometimes I get so happy, I have to go off by myself. There are marvelous places I alone know about. I climb to the source of a stream and sit to watch the rising mists. Sometimes I come across an old man of the woods. We talk and laugh and forget to go home. That's Oz for today. The Oz team that makes it all happen. There's myself, your host, Peter Bergman, my co-host, David Osman, John Cumming, our electronics uh, consultant. Phil Fountain is head of the Oz Design Group, make it oh so pretty. Tom Goodwillow is our webmaster. Chaz Glass does the financials, crunches the numbers, and keeps us straight. Dave Maloney, he owns Blue U, and he does all this fabulous audio recording. Bill McIntyre produces the whole schmageggy, and Scott Wilde is our social media guru. Catch you on the other side. <laughs>